bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. And now, host Biraj Borkataria and John Musk kick off the first session. My name is John Musk. I head up the uh, utilities equity research platform in Europe for RBC. Uh, welcome to this second session in our navigating the energy transition series. Uh, last time we we covered CCS. Uh, this time we are being perhaps even more ambitious and attempting to cover the wide topic of hydrogen over the course of the next hour. I'll be hosting the session with my colleague, my colleague uh, Biraj Bhaktaria, who you'll hear from in a second. Uh, but please, uh, we are trying to make this session as interactive active as possible. Uh, there is the ability to, to ask questions online. Uh, so if you want to post your questions, uh, we'll we'll get to those later in the session. Over to you, Virash. Thanks, John. Uh, hi, everyone. So we have three speakers today. Um, we have Greta Tveit, uh, Equinor's Senior Vice President and Head of Low Carbon Solutions, uh, Torsten Herbert, from Nell Hydrogen, uh, Director of Market Development and, and Public Affairs. And we also have Andy Brown. May, many of you may recognize his name and face from his days at Shell as head of Upstream, uh, but now retired from the Shell role. He has a number of other roles, including um, an advisory role to a hydrogen aviation startup. Um, so we thought it'd be interesting to bring Andy along. Um, We've got a few prepared questions, but as John said, if you do have one, please submit it online and we'll try and get to uh, them uh, as many as we can. Um, so maybe, Torsten, to, to kind of set the scene, uh, news flow around hydrogen has definitely picked up uh, in recent months. Um, it feels like I, I can almost join a hydrogen webinar you know, three times a day. Um, but could you talk about, from your perspective, you know, what role you see for, for hydrogen in the overall economy in the next decade or two decades? You know, why, why is it so important to, to reach the, the Paris goals? Yeah, it's, uh, hello everyone first. So uh, thanks for the question, Vidash. Uh, yeah, uh, you were right. So you can't actually uh, follow up all the news that are coming up, yeah, really in a, in a daily manner. And, and since I've been in the, in the hydrogen uh, area for now over 18 years, um, yeah, there were, there were lots of ups and downs already. Uh, but I guess uh, when we look at the current up, uh, that this is uh, definitely different from the others. And, and, and I think, and, and my, my thoughts on that are that uh, the, the last ups were, most of them were very much driven by the transport sector. And therefore, it was quite easy to take down these with like these one-dimensional arguments you always hear, like efficiency is too complex, infrastructure is too costly. Uh, and, and this was quite easy then uh, for, for these transport uh, applications. But now um, it seems that, that finally <laughs> the benefits of, of hydrogen for a uh, renewable energy system are widely understood and also acknowledged. Um, and, and let me just mention one, one like, good example for that, which could be an evidence for this. And that is the fact that uh, the, the Euro European Commission decided to publish the uh, EU hydrogen strategy uh, together with the energy system integration strategy. So this kind of indicates uh, there seems to be 
uh, an understanding now in, in the role of hydrogen for a renewable energy system. Um, in addition to that, what is different to, to the last ups is that the, the ambitious international climate targets now really finally force the, the hard to abate sectors like uh, industry, just name steel, chemistry, refineries, and heavy duty transport, including ships and planes, to that they are forced to develop solutions now. And, and especially for those, uh, hydrogen seems to be the only promising uh, option here. And um, finally, um, also due to the existing climate emergency, uh, it's now really the, the big oil and gas companies uh, that are looking into uh, these new green business opportunities and are, of course, very much in favor of, of hydrogen solutions, uh, since it's quite close to their uh, previous business models. Um, yeah, and, and besides like these, these, these technical advantages here, we now, um, due to the fact maybe that this, this systematic benefits of hydrogen for a renewable energy system are now acknowledged and understood, we now really see ambitious national strategies coming up. Uh, so the uh, very ambitious EU hydrogen strategy with a 40 gigawatt uh, installed electrolyzer target for 2030, uh, looking at today where we are around, yeah, something between 100 and 200 megawatts, wherever you, whatever you count. Um, this is a very ambitious strategy and this was only, let's say, the result of a few uh, national strategies that came up in Europe, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in, in Portugal, Spain, uh, France. Um, and uh, yeah, this also shows uh, the benefits are understood, uh, the political uh, attention is there, the political will is there. And uh, now we need to talk about implementation. And that uh, is actually, I think, then another topic in the course of uh, the discussion. Thanks for that. Um, I guess um, political will is, is, is really important. And maybe I'll go to you, Andy, um, and to dig out your old Shell hat. Um, you know, Shell was one of the early pioneers uh, into hydrogen. And, and you know, you, you have pushed, well, you had pushed it for a while. Definitely feels like the market and society and everything else has caught up. Could you just maybe take us a, a, a step back and talk about some of the things that didn't work? Was it just governments weren't on board? Was it industry wasn't on board? And can you talk about why it hasn't kicked off uh, you know, a decade ago or 15 years ago? Thanks, Biraj, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, look, so actually I was personally quite involved. In 1999, I was on a small team that was advising the CEO. And we talked, we looked at the fundamentals hydrogen and said, this is going to be a big business. And, you know, we then, the company then set up Shell Hydrogen in 2000. And, you know, they did a number of demonstration projects and it was finally folded. They spent quite a bit of money, but, you know, I think what you've got to learn is this only happens if the whole, you know, players in the value chain kind of come together, you know, from the generation of hydrogen, from the use of hydrogen. But also underpinned with, you know, government policy, regulations, incentives to actually make it happen. And a lot of those things were not in place. And so, you know, I think 
you know, what happened then clearly is is a lot of those things folded beyond petroleum and and you know international oil companies went back to their knitting. You know, then the momentum of the energy transition happened. Shell, as all those companies now talk about scope three emissions, and the big the big numbers come up from renewable electricity generation. And that's where they're focused. I think what they find now is they're now backing into the hydrogen again. Um, whether it's green hydrogen, there's going to be a lot of blue hydrogen. And, you know, there are retail stations that Shell is building in Germany. They've now come up with a shipping strategy. So I think it's really happening. And I, as you I mentioned, Thorsten, I mean, and, and Birat, there's, there's a lot um, of adjacency between what the oil companies get up to and hydrogen, whether it's because of blue hydrogen or because of its infrastructure or it, because they actually owning the customer relationships. I think, you know, they will play big in this. And when they put their capital behind it, I think that will help accelerate it. Okay, thanks, Andy. Um, maybe I can I can uh, bring Greta into the conversation here. Um, and you, Andy, mentioned blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, there's grey hydrogen where we don't have uh, CCS on the end of the, uh, the hydrocarbon process. Um, but Greta, maybe you can talk around uh, Equinor's ambitions in this area and in particular, if there is one part of the uh, the uh, the spectrum that you see as more attractive, so are you focusing more potentially on green hydrogen versus blue hydrogen, or is, are they completely different businesses for you? Let me first uh, say to you, Andy, you were right. Hydrogen is going to be very big business, I believe. You were just a bit early, uh, <laughs> twenty years early, maybe. Yes. Um, but. Uh, Equinor, we, we have a leading position in, in carbon efficient operations generally we'll, with very bold climate goals, uh, both towards 2030 and, and actually beyond. And if I list up our, our goals, it is first to have an upstream CO2 intensity below 8 kilo per barrel produced of CO2. Uh, and, and this is by 2025. Today we are at nine. Um, and the, the average for the industry is the double. So we've done a lot and we focused on this. And then going forward, we have uh, an ambition to have a carbon neutral operation uh, and near zero methane ambitions by 2030. And the third one is that we should be absolute greenhouse gas uh, uh, reductions of 40% by 2030 and near zero emissions by 2050. So of course we have to do something to reach those targets. In addition to that, we say that uh, we will reduce our net carbon intensity by at least 50% by 2050. So this includes scope one, two and three. And then you can say, is this a good business strategy? Uh, well, we think uh, it is. It's not taking the responsibility of others or undermining the emitter pace principle. In fact, we believe this is actually strengthening our competitiveness and secure attractive business opportunities for us. And then um, what do we do to reach uh, this uh, reduction of 50% by 2050? There are several levers. It's, it's the operational efficiency within the oil and gas. It is the oil and gas. Yeah. It's re 
movable growth, as was mentioned earlier here, uh, but it's also CCUS and hydrogen, uh, which is a large contributor to this. Um, and then if, if we move to, I have a slide in here, it's slide number two, low carbon solution uh, team, which I lead, we are trying to identify and mature and ensure development of hydrogen and CCUS. And I understand you talked about CCUS uh, in your former session, so I'll try to keep talking about hydrogen. But I, I have probably to mention CCUS a little bit because uh, if you can see my slide number two, we are engaged in activities ranging from open source CO2 transport and storage. And you might have heard about Northern Lights um uh, earlier uh, we also have several pre-combustion and hydrogen projects as well as one traditional post-combustion ccs uh, project based on gas-fired power plant as you say uh, gray hydrogen is created from fossil fuels but without ccs blue hydrogen is also created by fossil fuels but with carbon capture and storage, meaning CCS is actually a prerequisite for blue hydrogen. And Northern Light is actually the first flexible CCS project where CO2 can be captured and stored at different locations. So basically we can collect CO2 from all industrial sites which have access to a port. Um, so this CCS infrastructure can of course also support CO2 from blue hydrogen. And uh, maybe let me talk to a few of the hydrogen production uh, projects we have. Because um, we have both blue and green uh, hydrogen uh, projects. And the ship, if you see my slide, I don't, uh, but it is to the right. It's a so-called uh, bunker vessel for liquid hydrogen. So transporting hydrogen as liquid from the production site to, for instance, a cruise ship. And this has been designed for the first time in the world by us together with Wilhelmsen, which will use this uh, hydrogen for two new ships. And they will provide support to the oil and gas industry to, strand, to transfer goods from our base to base instead of doing road transportation. But of course, we are also looking into industrial applications for hydrogen, for instance, as a reduction agent in steelmaking. Uh, very interesting proposition where hydrogen can replace coal uh, in making uh, the steel and therefore reduce uh, pretty dramatically the CO2 emissions. And of course, we can use both blue and green hydrogen for this. Um, so, but. But let me mention an example when we talk about blue or green, because I strongly believe that we need both. Uh, and, and if we are going to meet our climate ambitions and really pretty ambitious targets that we have, we need both. But, but my example is Western Europe currently consumes about 8,000 terawatt hours energy based on oil and gas annually or maybe on fossil fuels, including carbon. Uh, what does it take to eliminate the CO2 emissions from this energy demand? Well, and this is only an example. First, if we assume that 50% of this can be solved by electrification, 
uh, and then and then of course renewable electricity. Um, that means that we need 4,000 terawatt hours of uh, new uh, renewable energy. This is approximately, it requires 1,000 gigawatt uh, installed, uh, which is about 250 times the Doggy Bank wind farm project, which uh, is today the by far the world's largest wind farm, and it took us 10 years to develop it. So then um, what about the other half, the remaining 4,000 terawatt hours? Um, well, because then we used all the renewable wind and solar that we are able to generate uh, in the short time, time frame. So um, to, um, to find power to the electrolyzers, we um, we need 150 new nuclear plants uh, of the size of Hinkley Point. Uh, and then, of course, we need to build the electrolyzers. And today, the largest electrolyzer is 10 megawatts. So then we need 50,000 of those electrolyzers. And the capacity in the world today is to build 100 of these each year. So if you do the math, it will take a very, very long time to develop this and, and do this only with green hydrogen. Then, of course, uh, the argument is technology will move on and we will install capacity to produce this. Yes, we will, but it will take time, unfortunately. So if we look to achieve this by green, uh, sorry, by blue hydrogen, first of all, we know that we have the natural gas source, we know they have, we have the supply system in place because we actually use it today. But we will need 500 uh, orthothermal reformers creating hydrogen out of natural gas. Um, and uh, we need about 100 of these, uh, uh, we, sorry, 500 and hundreds are, 100 are produced every year. So five years. So what, what this tells me is actually we need both. Uh, we can't live with blue or green. Let's stop arguing blue or green. Both are clean and we need them both. Okay, that's that's great. And uh, you, you mentioned 50,000 electrolyzers and maybe that's a good uh, prompt to bring Kirsten back into the, the conversation, um, which is obviously the focus of your business. I'm not sure whether you've got the capacity to build 50,000 a year. But, but maybe just take us quickly through the the economics of electrolyzers and how that may have changed uh, in the past few years and, and where the costs are now for, for building these projects. Yeah, so it'd be, we saw that we could definitely have like a, another session of this when we discuss green and blue. Uh, but uh, I think this was convincing and I think all the uh, let's say all the national strategies, including the European strategy, also acknowledge that, um, although, um, and that is again good for our business, uh, all of the strategies point to the long-term target uh, being like 100% uh, green hydrogen uh, in the system. Um, yeah, and, and what are we doing now? What is happening here? Uh, so uh, it's uh, just one thing to make sure we are not only in electrolyzers, we are uh, into uh, hydrogen technologies generally and mainly there 
also bringing up uh, hydrogen refueling stations, which is uh, also a very interesting field since I talked about the uh, one part of the hard-to-abate sectors like the heavy-duty uh, transport. And we are definitely also uh, invested, say, in uh, handling this challenge that, that is coming up here on delivering uh, reliable uh, large capacity stations uh, for these sectors. Um, talking about uh, electrolyzers and uh, what, what, let's say, a few years back and, and uh, a few months uh, in front. Uh, so we are definitely in a phase of, of investments here. Um, so we have, as you might know, we have three uh, manufacturing facilities uh, we, um, yeah, speaking in in years, three years ago now, we, we acquired a Proton uh, in the U.S. with uh, the PEM technology. Uh, they now have a capacity of 40 megawatts uh, a year, uh, which is um, um, scalable uh, already now uh, at the current facility up to um, 100 megawatts. Um, uh, then uh, talking about uh, alkaline electrolyzers, uh, which really from our point of view are the choice of technology when we talk about these large scale opportunities, these large scale customers um, for in, in industry, for example. Um, here we are uh, a, a big step ahead uh, of, of the competition. We already now invested in uh, a new facility in, in Norway, uh, where uh, as of next year, we will be able to uh, manufacture 500 megawatts uh, a year. Um, and uh, let's say the facilities there are uh, able to also um, facilitate uh, a capacity up to two, gig two gigawatt uh, a year just by adding, let's say, additional uh, uh, production lines. Um, and this is actually where we are. So we are investing upfront, um, but also based on a very large uh, backlog of projects. Um, and, and, and this gives us the opportunity now with, uh, let's say, these automated uh, manufacturing processes, uh, in, especially in the alkaline area, uh, that we are already now uh, in the ballpark of, let's say, the CAPEX targets that's, that, for example, the EU, European Commission is envisioning for 2030. Uh, so with this upfront investment in uh, this, this um, um, manufacturing capacity, we are uh, now, especially in the alkaline uh, technology, very, very cost competitive already now. Uh, and the same applies uh, to the facility of the hydrogen fueling stations in, in, in Denmark. Uh, so this uh, finally opened in 2018, uh, and the capacity there already now is 300 uh, stations a year. Um, and the colleagues are at the moment uh, heavily working uh, in the R&D field uh, on uh, the challenge that uh, yeah, the heavy duty sector brings. So, uh, uh, so far the focus, focus very much was on uh, 700 bar hydrogen stations for passenger cars. 
350 bar stations for buses. That was like uh, the main customer so far. Uh, but we are now talking about the heavy duty sector uh, where we uh, talk about uh, per refueling instead of two to five kilo hydrogen per refueling. We are now talking about something like between 50 and 100 kilos per refueling. Uh, and this needs to be done in, uh, yeah, still 10, 15 minutes to be uh, compatible, uh, yeah, to can compete with uh, a diesel fuel. Um, and, and this is uh, like the challenge that is currently addressed uh, and is also, of course, taking, taking resources uh, and, and R&D uh, investments here. And uh, maybe one, one thing also with regards to uh, what we already uh, reached now. So you can say uh, um, in the latest years, we got the capex for the, for the electrolyzers down by 40%. And uh, like formulated the other way around for the stations, uh, we could say that really looking from the first generation station in 2003, uh, we had a, a footprint reduction by two thirds, uh, a capacity increase by 10 times, uh, and, and we are still at the, at the same unit price. So much more for the money. Uh, and we are talking about, let's say, around 1 million for. Uh, the uh, standard uh, fueling module. Just just building on um, some of your your later comments there about about end users. You know, when I think about hydrogen, I'm thinking about heavy trucking, long distances, you know, or industries where electrification just doesn't work because of energy density and things like that. Um, but Andy, you know, aviation is is not the most obvious one I think of when I think of hydrogen. So you recently partnered with Zero Avia, uh, a hydrogen aviation company. Could you just talk a little bit about that um, and you know, how did that come, come about and what is what are they trying to trying to do? Yeah, so when I, as I'm, I'm a hydrogen believer, so I looked at the, the industrial or the whole kind of areas it could be used. And the reason I focused on aviation was because I think consumers are really becoming conscious of their CO2 footprint. And, you know, a lot of travel, and when we're out of COVID, a lot of travel is voluntary, and, and, and therefore I think people will look to go on holiday and not have a conscience about the CO2 footprint they create. And you've got a travel industry, you've got airlines, you've got socially responsible corporations that all want to be able to move around the world once we can. Um, and, and do so with a very low CO2 footprint. So I thought aviation would be something that would, once it's adopted, would accelerate fast. It's also an industry that's growing at 4% a year. So, you know, once we're back to normal, so, so it's, a, it's a fast growing industry. But then you look at the, you know, what could be the other low CO2 solutions? And I think the battery, um, and the others may have some better data on this, but you know, a hydrogen system, fuel cell system, just a compressed hydrogen versus battery is four or five times lighter. In other words, kilowatt hours generated per kilogram weight, which really means batteries are going to have a real problem without a breakthrough to actually have the range that you'll need um, for aircraft. Now, a lot of people say, well, synthetic fuels are the solution, they're just dropping 
but boy, you know, I was responsible for building probably the largest synthetic fuel plant in the world. Um, that's not a simple thing to do. Um, it's, it's much more energy intensive. Uh, you use hydrogen in the process. Um, when you get on the plane, it's still emitting CO2. Okay, CO2 has been manufactured renewably, but I think there would still, I think there are still going to be some question marks. And particularly the entrails, contrails, actually have a global warming potential that oh, means the reduction is only about 50% or 30 to 60%. Um, similarly with biofuels, you know, biofuels are 500 times less efficient on land use for generating electricity or, or power than solar. So I think those two things, which a lot of people are looking at, and the batteries, we're not going to win over hydrogen. I think the other thing about hydrogen, it's actually really energy dense in terms of 33 kilowatt hours per kilogram versus 13 for gas. So as a product, it has a lot of energy. Storage is the issue. And that's, you know, that we can't get away from that. But, you know, even on the current designs and, and the way I went for why for, for zero avia is they basically had a simple solution, compressed hydrogen and a fuel cell to fly a plane. And they were selling it not on basis of, you know, incentives. They were selling it on the basis that it was going to be cheaper than a conventional engine. To, for the fuel, ultimately, once we get down to, let's say, $3 a kilogram or something like that. But also on maintenance, because fuel cells are more durable than, than, a, than a combustion engine. So actually, their sales pitch is not one of, great, give me a subsidy. It is basically, this is going to be traditional aircraft. And they had a plan to commercialize by 2023. Now, as some of you might know, they, they had their first flight three weeks ago. It was a six-seater. They are going to go 300 nautical miles in that six-seater by the end of the year. But there'll be a 20-seater that they will develop next year. And 2023, they will be going uh, basically into commercial operations. So, you know, really quite a short time span. And there's political momentum behind it. There's the UK government get Jet Zero. There's the EU clean aviation initiative. And lastly, I'll just say, it's interesting that since I joined, Airbus has now come out and said, by 2035, they have, they're going to have three new hydrogen designed airplanes that are going to be able to do, you know, medium range flights of, of 200 people on board. So it's not just Zero Avia, who actually have been a bit of a leader in this, but it's the big boys now that are following suit. Um, and really, I think, believe that aviation is going to be quite an early adopter of this. Just going on to that, I mean, uh, that was my question is, a 20-seater going to a 300-seater, uh, you know, are we are we likely to see triple sevens, hydrogen fuel triple sevens in the next couple of decades, or is it just... Yeah, I think so. No, I, look, I think, you know, I think Airbus is talking about 200-seaters. I mean, there is an argument that very long intercontinental flights, sin fuels may be just because of the storage issue, may be the one, the one that will be hard to replace with hydrogen. But Zero Avia actually have a plan that they'll go commercial operations to 20 seater by um, 2023. By 2027, they'll go to 50 to 100 seater, and by 2030 to 100 to 200 seater. Now, you will progressively go to more hybrid solutions. You may well have a hydrogen heat engine on that for takeoff. Um, in some kind of hybrid solution, you'll definitely, for the longer range, you'll go to liquid hydrogen versus gaseous hydrogen. So I think there will be an evolution of the technology, but the great thing about Zero Avia is they're just getting going. 
and, and just proving the technology works and, and you know, getting you know, the, the approval um, to fly, I think, has been a big barrier. And that actually then will gain the confidence that will actually create the momentum that I think will then create, you know, some kind of inevitability about aviation moving, a lot of aviation moving towards hydrogen. I don't know, my fellow panelists may have a view on that, but I, you know, <laughs> I clearly believe in it, so. So I'm, I'm, I'm a believer since 18 years, as I said, so therefore uh, you can guess my, my take on this. I, I also strongly believe in, in this coming. Uh, I'm not sure how long time it will take, but I definitely believe this will come. And it was very exciting to hear you talk about that. But one, yeah. one interesting point here is really uh, also, if this comes, uh, the question of, of infrastructure and which form of hydrogen is used. Um, so this, this, this will be also like an exciting development. Maybe I can just change tack uh, again um, and question question for you, Greta, on your plans specifically in the UK and the and the Humber cluster. Um, as mentioned, we had CCS previously, and uh, we had Drax talking about their plans for for Bex. Um, but what is it that you are uh, looking to to do at the, the zero carbon Humber cluster, and in particular with H2H uh, salt end. Yes, uh, definitely like to talk about that. And and I sent over three slides. So if you pull up the last one, um, actually last week, Equinor together with eleven other companies and organisations submitted a joint proposal to create a low carbon cluster in the Humber. Uh, and it will be UK's largest and most carbon uh, it is UK's largest and most carbon intensive industrial region. Um, and uh, the application uh, by what we call zero carbon Humber, that's kind of our name on this, uh, on, uh, with this partnership, is the first step in creating actually the world's first net zero industrial cluster. And we believe we can do it by 2040. Uh, and it will then support the clean growth in north uh, east of England. Um, and, and we are proud to be having the architecture role of, of zero carbon number. Uh, and uh, we are partnering with a broad group of forward-looking companies. Um, this proposal can bring tremendous benefit to the Humber region. It can protect industries that are there today, creating jobs, promoting economic growth and reducing emissions, of course. Uh, our bid um, demonstrates the kind of ambitious actions that is needed for, for UK to achieve its net zero carbon target by 2050. So the bid centers around two elements, and the first being the Equinor-led hydrogen to Humber Sultan, which we call in short H2H Salten. So this is a hydrogen project at Salten Chemicals Park uh, near the city of Hull. Uh, it today emits 3.5 million tons CO2 a year. 
so it emits more than the whole of Teesside, the whole of Merseyside and Southampton clusters. So H2H Sultan will be the largest plant of its kind in the well to convert natural gas to hydrogen, combining a 600 megawatt autothermal reformer with carbon capture. So that, that's the plan. Uh, it will enable industrial customers in Salton to fully switch over to hydrogen. Uh, and, and the existing power plant there, uh, run by Triton, um, will move to a 30% hydrogen to natural gas blend, blend. So Mitsubishi Power is engaged with Triton to evaluate uh, this blending of hydrogen in, into the gas. Uh, for this power plant and, and uh, from the first production of H2H Sultan, we will reduce uh, the emissions by nearly 1 million tonnes per year. So the second element is uh, the hydrogen and carbon dioxide or CO2 pipeline network that we will develop together with National Grid Ventures. And this aims to link the H2H Sultan to other industrial sites in the Humber region, enabling them in turn to fuel switch to hydrogen and or capture their emissions, the CO2 emissions. So 100 pipeline uh, being able to serve and deliver hydrogen uh, to all of them and one pipeline being able to collect and transport the CO2 that they capture to a store. Um, these sites include Strax Power Station, sorry, uh, CCS uh, Thermal TB site, Universe Killingholm site, and British Steel. So, Equinor is not in, in the Humber by accident. Gas supplies from Norway land at Easington, uh, very close to the Humber area, uh, and it is the UK's largest industrial cluster by employment and emissions. So more than one third of the total emissions from UK industrial clusters comes out of the Humber area. And as we believe in blue hydrogen is, is actually needed to provide low carbon hydrogen at scale, uh, which is needed to, to develop the hydrogen economy. Uh, we, we really want to, to focus on this, but we also believe that the cost of green hydrogen will come down, as Tostet talked about, uh, and uh, we see that H2H Sultan will grow over time uh, with further blue hydrogen production, but also supplies of green hydrogen using offshore wind, because our, our big wind farms is just offshore of uh, the Humber area. Um, and then um, with the installed pipeline, this hydrogen can travel all over the Humber cluster. So, um, I, uh, H2H Sultan can expand to serve all of these industrial clusters. And you know what? Employment in, in the, only the manufacturing sector alone in Humber is 55,000 people. So we are kind of taking care of their jobs, even in an environment where we will uh, get rid of all uh, CO2 emissions. Um, so, and we also estimate that doing this fuel switching will create a lot of jobs. And all over UK, it's estimated by external companies that they will create 43,000 jobs, not all of them in number, of course. So the world continues to need more energy at lower emissions, so we can achieve uh, the, the Paris uh, agreement uh, goals 
And I really believe that we then have to decarbonize the industry and it can't be electrified all of it, as said earlier here. So we believe we need carbon capture and we do need hydrogen. And I really believe that blue and green are clean and we need both. Thank you for that. Um, maybe we'll, we'll have one more question um, and then we'll move to the, to the Q&A. Um, maybe we can talk about some of the challenges. So um, the most common pushback uh, I've heard on the hydrogen thesis is about energy efficiency, i.e. how much energy you need to create energy um, and, and then transporting it and then converting it back uh, to electricity via the fuel cells. So Torsten, maybe you could touch on some of those some of those factors uh, and you know what is your view on that yeah. so if it is okay for you since I'm a bit tired of this uh, efficiency uh, topic uh, and and I think I talked about also in, in my first uh, in the first question that I think in the meantime the the majority uh, of politicians but also like in in, in, the, in the public area, uh, it is understood that uh, a, a renewable energy system, an, an energy system based on renewables, will not be sufficient working on uh, only electrons. So we need uh, molecules for a renewable energy system. And I think this is understood and this is displayed in all, all the national and, and also European, the European hydrogen strategy that, that came out. So I'm, if you're okay with that, I would not really uh, go into uh, details uh, with regards to efficiency since uh, I don't know if you know these, this famous uh, chart uh, that, that is, uh, was on social media uh, answering to these, these uh, efficiency charts comparing the different paths where it says, okay, uh, what is the most efficient way uh, to wash yourself? And that's of course standing in the rain. Um, uh, therefore, I think that quite nicely shows uh, that it is a systematic uh, approach here, and, and, and this is widely understood now. Therefore, uh, I would I would stress at, as as the main challenge uh, at the moment, and I touched on that at the beginning, uh, is really now that that hydrogen, with all its benefits for for such a such a renewable uh, energy system, needs to be integrated in this system as, as, an, as a fixed asset. And, and that, that also means, uh, that, or, that, or that mainly means a, a suitable regulatory framework. Um, so all the function, function it can deliver as a storage medium, as a fuel for transport, um, its role in the future gas grid, all these things need a regulatory framework. And in best case, a regulatory framework for all Europe. Uh, and this is the challenge we are facing now. So we have the technologies, we have the political will, uh, and now we need to come up with uh, also giving hydrogen the possibility to, to play in its best, in its best uh, shape uh, with a suitable uh, regulatory framework. And, uh, that is can be from benefit schemes for grid services like like storage and resilience it needs to be defined as a fuel for transport um it uh, also the, the as i said the role and the transition in the natural gas grid needs to be defined then we talked about blue and green what is blue and green 
how is this defined? How can this be certified also to um, enable a, a global hydrogen market? So what is the value of blue? What is the value of green uh, hydrogen? And how is this internationally defined? Um, and then, of course, like uh, an important topic, a reasonable carbon pricing. So how does a green and, 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 and lower carbon hydrogen uh, fit into this picture. Um, so I would really stress this uh, regulatory framework now implementing all the national strategies really as the main challenge we have um, that in the best case needs to happen uh, internationally, at least on a European level now, if we, if you look at into that. Um, and uh, I'm convinced that international cooperation is also one key uh, for that, and uh, we we really uh, saw like this materializing in the last week. So we saw uh, Germany and France, Germany and Ukraine, uh, Portugal and Netherlands, Netherlands and the U.S. lately signing uh, um, memorandums of understanding to work together to to tackle these challenges. Um, and uh, this makes me very positive that. Uh, with the existing technology, the political will, and uh, international cooperation, also covering the, the different industries, that this this implementation can happen. Okay, thank you, thank you for that, Dawson. Um, I think we'll spend the rest of the session looking at some of the questions that have come in online. Um, and, and just starting straight away, uh, there's a couple in here on uh, water availability and how much water is is potentially needed uh, in the production of hydrogen as we uh, hit, try and hit some of these targets. Now, I'm not sure whether whether that's one for you, Torsten, or potentially for Greta, but between you, if maybe you could, uh, or any of you, uh, would like to try and tackle that one quickly. Yeah, so, so I can go first. Uh, of course, it's it's uh, I think self-explaining that when we talk about hydrogen and also synthetic fuels, for example, uh, that this all needs to happen sustainable in a sustainable way, and uh, yeah, that's all. That also means that uh, the location is crucial. So depending on where we produce uh, these uh, fuels and gases and green gases. We need to make sure that also the water availability is given and the, that the water uh, that is used uh, is not taken from any like uh, inhabitants there or from any communities around uh, this place. So, uh, and this is definitely also part of what, what I just said in my last answer. Uh, and this needs to be part of the certification. Uh, yeah. What is the water source uh, for 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 all these fuels and and for for the green hydrogen? Um, and that I would definitely include that also in in this regulatory challenge I just uh, described. I have nothing more to to add to that. It's all about the location uh, and and the authorities to uh, to judge what kind of uh, regulations uh, that will support uh, the business. Thank you both. Um, so maybe the next one, um, it, I'll, go to, I'll go to you, Andy. Um, you mentioned in your opening remarks that you sort of study the landscape and aviation was one area or end market that you thought was, was, was attractive 
uh, for hydrogen, but could you talk a little bit about the marine sector? Um, does that display similar prospects? Are there more challenges there? Uh, and in details around that would be helpful. Yeah, I look, I briefly looked at, and Michelle issued a report, I think just last week on their marine strategy for fuels and um, they clearly came out with hydrogen and fuel cells being, you know, part of that solution. You know, I think some of that is, do you have a, you know, do you have a, a carrier, liquid carrier, ammonia or something as a, as a way to actually make sure you get dense storage of that? So, no, I mean, ultimately, marine, you're never going to have electric tankers. I mean, it just isn't going to happen. Just there won't be the battery capacity. So, so you're going to have to have a dense fuel. And if you want to avoid CO2, then there are a few solutions that, you know, that, that are available. And hydrogen or a hydrogen-based molecule is clearly, you know, the one. So I think that's going to be a big sector. Um, you know, I go sailing sometimes, and I can tell you there's nothing worse than the smell of diesel fuel in a nice, beautiful harbour. So, you know, <laughs> there's also a, a very personal part of, you know, the cleanness of hydrogen as a fuel in, in the marine sector. Maybe maybe a follow up uh, similar question in on um, synergies between fuel cells for aviation and cars. Um, I mean, do you see one as as helping the others, uh, and can some of the learnings in in aviation be brought to to, to the car world? Yeah, look, I think and the, I, one of the things I should have said earlier, the reason it didn't happen earlier is it's all about going down the cost curves, um, and you know Nell is doing that, and you know. The more you build, the cheaper it's going to become. So the more sectors that that adopt this. Now, clearly, aviation, because of the weight constraint, is going to have to do a lot of original work and a lot of research, particularly get a liquid hydrogen and other things. So I think that's going to help a lot. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think yeah, hydrogen may may. I, you know, I'm looking forward to getting a hydrogen car. To be honest, I you know I, I still have range anxiety around electrical cars. So you know, I think there is going to be um, the fuel cell manufacturers, there's going to be a lot of interplay between the various sectors. Um, and yeah, I can see, I can certainly see heavy duty transport, but there may even be light transport that starts to, to look at hydrogen. If, if it's okay, I would, I would add two sentences here. Um, definitely, I think going down the cost curve, the quantities are needed. And, and there, I would even say it could also work the other way around. So if there is like the success in the automotive sector, where really the quantities are when we talk about cells. Uh, so each fuel cell in a car has uh, between 300 and 400 cells. Um, and uh, this is real, real quantities. And uh, I think it, it, it rather can also go in the other direction. And this uh, shows like a recent uh, publication or a recent press release by Elring Klinger and uh, Airbus, uh, where like Elring Klinger as a classical uh, automotive supplier uh, who started in the fuel cell business is now partnering up with, with Airbus uh, also for their uh, ambitious ambitions in, in hydrogen and fuel cells and aviation. So I think it's both ways. Uh, but uh, as Andy said, we need uh, the quantities and their uh, automotive has a, has a crucial role. Yep. 
Great, thank you. Um, so the next question has come up uh, in a few different iterations, but I wanted to throw it out to um, to Greta. Um, but as you are involved in a few um, kind of hydrogen projects in, in Europe, could you talk a bit about uh, you know what level of carbon price is required to 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 make these things move forward? Uh, obviously, government support in the near term helps, but uh, on a non-subsidized basis, you know, what kind of carbon price are we talking about? I've seen a lot of uh, literature on this uh, and, and it varies a lot. To be honest, we haven't calculated that. What we see is in the beginning now, uh, before we go down the cost curve, we need uh, uh, funding support. But we do believe that we will move down the cost curve as uh, Tosin have said and, and uh, others, when you get the, uh, the volume, you will move downwards on the cost curve. Then we believe we will need a certain uh, CO2 price uh, to compete with alternative uh, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, but we also believe that in addition to going down the cost curves and the CO2 taxes or whatever we call it, we do believe that customers over time would be willing to actually pay a little extra to get a clean clean product that might be a clean car made out of clean steel which includes clean steel it uh, might be a a clean uh, uh, vacation uh, by by the plane so i think a combination of these things will actually make this an economical business going forward Right. Um, I think we, we're coming up towards the end of our, our time slot here, so maybe maybe one more, um, and maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Greta. But uh, others, please please jump in. Uh, and that is, how does the energy input vary uh, or differ between the uh, uh, production of green and blue hydrogen? So the cost of the energy input, I think, what we're talking about here. Sorry, uh, I lost you uh, because of bad connection here for a second. No, sorry, no problem. It was how how does the energy input to produce hydrogen compare between green and blue? So, I mean, um, I I do I do believe first of all, if I understand the question correctly, uh, that today. Uh, probably the green hydrogen is uh, is uh, more expensive than the blue, but it will depend on the location and if you have available uh, renewable energy to put in there that comes for free. Uh, so it all depends on the location. But we do sincerely believe that uh, over time uh, the cost reductions of green hydrogen will will move further down or have a steeper decline than we will on the blue hydrogen. So I think they will be comparable, at least uh, some some places in the world over time. But I'm not sure that was the question. I hope it was. There's there's one there's one let's say rule rule of thumb for for green hydrogen and this shows how important at least for green hydrogen the power prices are uh, and that is that roughly 75 percent of the hydrogen price that you are generating uh, comes from the power input price um, and and this shows uh, power prices uh, for green hydrogen are really crucial 
Um, and uh, this, again, uh, fits into my argumentation with the biggest challenge we have, uh, that uh, we have no uh, European-wide uh, regulation here, uh, how electrolyzers will be handled in the energy system. So, for example, in Germany at the moment, uh, if you operate an electrolyzer, it's like operating your dishwasher at home. Uh, you pay uh, the same levies on the power prices as uh, as if you operate your dishwasher at home. And this could not be, uh, this, is, this cannot be the solution, that's obvious. Uh, and that is different in each European country. Uh, and it's well acknowledged also, it's mentioned in every uh, hydrogen strategy, uh, but we really need to come to a European-wide implementation here now. And uh, yeah, again, 75% of the hydrogen price, of the green hydrogen price is uh, coming from the input price or the power input price. And maybe a comment to that, because also a large, large um, cost of the green, uh, sorry, the blue hydrogen is, of course, uh, the natural gas price. So uh, if, if hydrogen is over time replacing natural gas and there is a surplus of natural gas, then, of course, the prices of natural gas will come down as well. So I think it's very dependent on, uh, I mean, uh, the power prices, uh, whether that is uh, natural gas or, or it's actually power both for blue and green. So if I can just add from, uh, you know, I think the question was about energy efficiency. Um, I, can, I think the electrolyzer is about 70% efficient. I think ATR is similar uh, in terms of generating, generating hydrogen. Um, so from what I know about this, you know, blue hydrogen is a lot cheaper than green hydrogen, perhaps. $2 for green hydrogen, um, $5 perhaps per kilo for, for green. But if you get electricity prices down at $30 per, or 30 pounds per megawatt hour, electrolyzer costs, you know, half or a third of what they are today, then they will compete. So that's, that's the equation. And, you know, I think they'll be competing in the 2030s. That's great. Um, so I think we can, we can wrap it there. So firstly, you know, thank you all for attending, Greta, Andy, and, and Torsten. Really appreciate your your insights. Um, this probably warrants doing another hydrogen deep dive at some point into one of the end markets, whether it's autos or cement or something, you know, something uh, at some point. But um, uh, as John mentioned at the start, this is the second in our series of navigating the energy transition, and we wanted to break it up given there's there's so much to talk about. Um, the upcoming events we have are working on the renewable fuels event in November. Uh, and potentially um, a, a event on the future of grids, uh, the power grid in December to, to wrap up the end of the year with some, with some more next year. So thank you all for attending uh, and really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.